defense. No, because now what – and the front office for Atlanta has done a great job. You're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com.
Good evening and welcome to Morph Mom Moments. What an exciting night we have, an exciting guest, so inspirational, so motivational, somebody that will encourage you to go out and do whatever it is you ever wanted to achieve. Because against all odds, odds, that's exactly what our guest tonight, Janine Shepard, did. Um, and before I get into the official introduction and we bring Janine on, I want to give all of those new to the show tonight a very, very quick intro, I promise. I'm Kathleen Smith. I'm the founder of Morph Mom, which is M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com. Um, it's a multimedia platform. We have a website where I've interviewed women all over the country. We uh, are at for Huffington Post. I host cocktail parties around the country to connect women. And now we have this radio show. And basically, we showcase and we promote stories of women and what they've done, the steps that they've taken, things that worked, things that didn't work, to encourage others, to inspire others, and to empower others to go out and do something that they always wanted to do or something similar similar to the story that's being told. Um, there's no one better that I can think of that epitomizes and summarizes everything we're trying to accomplish with Morph Mom and get across other than Janine Shepard, our guest tonight. Janine is the author, author of Defiant, A Broken Body is Not a Broken Person. And you're going to hear more from Janine, but a very quick summary about her incredible, remarkable life as an Australian elite ski racer, uh, basically, and by the way, known as Janine the Machine, who was on her way to Calgary and was tragically hit, had, a, had a, an accident and was hit while on a bicycle ride in the Blue Mountains of Australia um, and was told everything was done. She, you know, she would not walk, she would not fly, she would not have children, she would not accomplish anything beyond that. And through her determination, her inspiration, and her strength, you'll hear exactly what she did overcome and you will be inspired to go and achieve anything you ever thought that you could or could not go out and do. So Janine, without further ado, thank you. Thank you for joining our show tonight. Oh, hi, Kathleen. And thank you for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled. <laughs> it's an honor. It, it truly is an honor. I meant everything I just said. You truly do embody and you do, you embody everything you want to see in somebody, the strength to overcome, the power to overcome, and the persistence. And um, tonight, we're going to be talking a lot about your story and how it all came to be and the book that you now have out, Defiant, A Broken Body is Not a Broken Person. So Janine, before we get there, tell us about yourself and sort of your story and, and how it all led up to where we are today. Well, it's really interesting that you mentioned my nickname, Janine the Machine, <laughs> which I'm going to reclaim. I'm going to reclaim that tonight because, <laughs> because you know that was a nickname that was given to me very early on as an athlete, and because basically, I mean, it, it said everything about you know the way I trained. I always trained with the guys. I gave it a hundred and you know one hundred and fifty percent if that's possible. I mean, I just I left nothing behind. So I, you know, that was that was my nickname, Janine the Machine. And I, I was t absolutely focused. I'd been, well, I'd been an athlete since I was six or seven and going through all different sports and reaching national level. And of course, when I found cross country skiing, it was, you know, I mean, the ultimate endurance sport. It was tough. You had to be really tough to be a cross country skier. They, you know, it, it required incredible, you know, aerobic endurance and strength and just grit. So it was perfect, you know. And so my goal was to, as every athlete, post athletes, you know, to get to the Olympics and to really show the world what an Aussie could do because, you know, we weren't thought of as being a you know, winter sports country. So I really wanted to put Australia on the map 
um, as as a force to be reckoned with. And, you know, everything was, you know, lining up. The stars were aligning. I had been overseas skiing and racing, and I was approached by the Canadian ski team coach who had said, um, Marty Hall, who had invited me to train with the Canadian team, and he'd said, Janine, you know, I, I believe in you. You can do this. Come and train with us and use our facilities. So I was on track to, to represent... Um, Australia at the 88 Winter Olympics in Calgary and that was it, absolutely totally focused. So came back I was finishing uh, my last year at university in sports science and um, I set out on a training bike ride with my fellow teammates and we were on a six hour ride from Sydney to the Blue Mountains and we'd been on our bikes for around five and a half hours I guess and you know my last memory was just um, look, getting up off my bike out of the seat because we were on the hills because I loved the hills <laughs> and looking up and, and the sun shining in my face and then everything went black and that and that's my last memory. So you do you, you don't recall the, any anything beyond that when it actually happened? You don't recall any of that? Nothing. No, only only much later. I mean, I actually had you know, what I call a death experience, not a near-death experience because I'd left my body. And for 10 days, I hovered between what I would call two dimensions where, you know, my body was, they were keeping my body alive, but I was out of my body and, you know, looking on and thinking, I'm not going back to that body. You know that? Really? <laughs> why would I go back to why would I go back to that body? But, you know, I, it's the one thing that I thought defined who I was. The one, it was the thing I valued most in my life, my physical right. strength. And why would I go back to that? Do you, re- and do you remember back to that? Like, were there times when you sort of were in and out, like coming back, going, like looking, yeah. what, what was that like from what you remember? It was, it was as if I was, in and out of dimensions, you know, it was if I could, I, you know, one moment I was in my body and, you know, sort of coming back to my body and then I was out of my body again and, um, you know, and, and, and coming to the decision and being in this place where I knew that I didn't have to go back. And it was almost yeah. like I wanted so much to, to let go and I couldn't. You know, as much as I, I wanted to let go, there was something that was just almost like holding me, you know, holding me down. It was, I always say it was almost, almost like, you know, being on two sides of a tug of war and, you know, I was trying to pull and something was pulling me back. And I really think looking back now that uh, what I didn't know is that my parents were sitting at my bedside, you know, holding my hand and, you know, praying that I would stay. And, and I think it was just the sheer will of all those people around me that really, you know, was like my lifeline. And after 10 days, I made the decision to come back. And, and when I did, the internal bleeding stopped. I mean, I had, it was just, for 10 days, they were pumping blood into my body and I was losing it. And they were just saying to my parents, we can't do anything else. Just, you know, get ready, basically. Uh. So it was a nightmare for them. When so on the tenth day, you you woke up. Is that was that? Mm-hmm. I opened my eyes, yeah, and saw my father, my father's face looking down at me. And at that point, it was almost like uh, a, a mixture of disbelief and confusion. You know, like I didn't, I'm not meant to be back here. Right. <laughs> and and then and then of course the incredible overwhelming pain. Mm. Right away. Oh, 
it was all consuming. I mean, my whole body, the truck had hit me in the back of my body. And oh. so it had ripped out half of my gluteal muscle on my left side. My whole back and torso was just swollen and bruised black. But of course, because I had so many broken bones, you know, because my neck and my back were broken, oh I had to lie on my back on this really thin, hard spinal bed, you know, with a collar around my neck and, you know, things beeping everywhere and drips and oxygen masks and I mean it was it was all consuming when when you did wake up um did you realize where you like did you realize the extent of what had happened to you I know the pain was tremendous but when did you realize I guess the extent to which you'd suffered the the, the um you know, the extent that uh, about your broken neck and the broken bones and and the effect it would have on you f- potentially walking in the future. And, and when did that all come to to be? Well, I, that took a long time because the, the doctors told my parents they uh, not to tell me anything um, because they, they really thought that if they told me, you know, just how serious it was that I would give up. Right. And I probably... I probably would. You know, I mean, it was it, every time I, they said, wait till she asks. So I would ask a question. Well, um, you know, what's wrong? Or have I done this? And then they, you know, it was like they were drip feeding me information. One moment it was, oh, well, you've broken your neck. Um, oh, well, you've broken your arm. Um, oh, well, you've broken your back. And, you know, I mean, it was just, and then I, they'd give me time to process it. And, right. you know, I kept saying, but, I, but I'm going to ski, right? I'm going to ski again. And um, I remember at one point, someone, a doctor came along and said, this is weeks after, you know, the accident. And he said, I'm just, he had an, a, just a simple test. He had a, he had a needle and he said, I, I'm just going to start pricking you and I want you to tell me when you can feel it. And I remember thinking, you know, well, hurry up. <laughs> yeah. And then next thing, next thing he was standing right next to me. And of course he'd been pricking all of my, my legs oh. the whole time and I, and I couldn't feel it. And it, it's like, I can't tell you, I mean, if you can even imagine just you know, waking up and, and you're paralyzed and you're in a hospital bed. I mean, it's a nightmare. I, it's a nightmare. I kept thinking, no, this is a dream. I'm just going right. to wake up and be back at home. Did, did you realize it before that day when the doctor had been pricking you and you hadn't felt it? Was that the first time you sort of actually started to realize yeah, how the that, extent of it? That was probably the first time that I thought, um, something going on here that you know it's it's probably much worse than I than I think, and then you know they waited and waited and it was you know probably around five or six weeks after the accident that um, things had gradually like I had a little flicker. Um, in, in one of my toes, and then they got really excited about that. And I thought, yes, this is it. I'm, right. I'm recovering. <laughs> and, of course, then it all stopped again. Oh. And, um, you know, there's a lot of – when you're in hospital with, with injuries this severe, you know, there's a lot of swelling, a lot of spinal shock, and so they really don't know. And, of course, then they got to the point where they said, no, look, this is um, – we're going to have to operate and if we don't, you, you will be in a wheelchair. But it's touch and go and, you know, it's spinal surgery and there are no guarantees. And, you know, I mean, it could have even been my life then. But um, And then I thought, I think when they just told me and my parents that they'd have to operate on my back, that it just really was very difficult. I remember that day very clearly in a hospital that, that it just, you know, the penny dropped. And I thought, uh, uh, this is really serious. Right. <laughs> and... and- did you, when he gave you that option, 
at that point, what were you thinking? Like, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Or, or what was your reaction when he said that to you? You know, it's, I couldn't think really clearly. You've got to remember, I was so severely injured and in an incredible amount of pain um, that, you know, a lot of the time I would just be, oh, just please give me some painkillers. I can't, right. you know, I, I just have to drift off. And and so, you know, I was sort of in and out of consciousness all the time and trying to sort of live in, uh, living in this sort of surreal world of thinking that, uh, you know, th- this is just, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be home. Right. And we really didn't have a choice when they say, when I say it was a choice, it was, well, I mean, they were basically saying there is no choice. The neck break was a stable fracture. So as long as I just laid in bed for, you know, months and months, that would be okay. But um, the, the vertebrae in my back, L1, they said to my to my parents, it was as if you'd trodden on a peanut and crushed it into thousands of pieces. I had what's called a comminuted fracture. So that vertebrae was completely crushed and the bone was shattered and lodged in my spinal cord. So, you know, if, if I ever wanted any chance of getting up again, that was it. They had to operate. They had to try and get that bone that had lodged in my spinal cord and rebuilt my back. Oh my god! Which is what they did. And how old were you when when this happened? I was I was twenty four when I had oh, the accident. You were you know, so everything, young. Uh, everything in front of me, you know. I was at university. I was going to the Olympics. I was in a relationship. Had a boyfriend. That it was just yeah. It was my worst nightmare. So you decide to go ahead. How many months had you been in the hospital before you had the surgery? I think it was around, by the time I actually had the surgery, it was six weeks. And I'd been counting down thinking, oh, you know, they told me 12 weeks in hospital. And of course, then we had to start the clock all over again. Because when they, the surgery, when I was having the surgery, which is, I'd been in hospital for almost two months then, then I had to be flat on my back for another 12 weeks. So that was just, I sunk into this depression. I mean, I just you know, lying in this bed and I just wanted to go home. I wanted to be in my bed. I wanted to be home. Right, right. And when you said the depression sort of obviously would not be in this situation, was there any, at that time or during that time, was there any time you would almost struggle with, wait, it's, it's going to get better? Like, were there times when you sort of got yourself a little bit motivated to say, no, it's going to be okay? And then, or, or did that come later? The whole time in hospital, I kept telling myself, no, it's going to be okay, you know, and I think that I was helped tremendously by the fact that, firstly, I had, you know, a lot of patients around me, and we sort of stuck together and became a team, and um, I had, you know, incredible parents that were there every single day for me, sitting by my bedside and talking to me, and, and friends that were visiting all the time, and that really sort of buoyed me and kept me going. I kept thinking, no, they've come in to visit me. I have to be happy. I have to be on top oh. of everything for them. And and um, that was exhausting as well. Um, you know, there was that one period in hospital when I just thought, I can't do this anymore. And I remember I had one particular nurse who was just a great help to me and um, sat by my bed that night when I just, you know, sobbed. And, and we talked and had a, a heart-to-heart. And, um, I mean, that was just... It was a tremendous help to me. And I, I think most importantly, though, it was just knowing that, you know, I had other people in the hospital with me, particularly one uh, patient, Maria, who was uh, the girl that they moved me next to. When I Actually, when I had that very depressive period in hospital, they decided to move me to another ward because they thought um, a change of scenery might be good. Right. So they moved me to a ward with a young girl because they thought we're always similar age and, and that would be good. 
But this particular girl they moved me next to, Maria, had been in a very serious accident and she was, you know, we'd heard through the, the hospital grapevine that Maria um, was a total quadriplegic, um, which meant that she could only really move her head and they were moving me next to her. I was so incredibly nervous because I just didn't know how to be around someone that had this level of disability. Right. And, and you know, the irony in all this is that they moved me and they actually thought it, it would be good for Maria, but in fact it was actually good for me because all I, you know, <laughs> talk about perspective. All I had to do was look to the bed next right. to me and see her and think, you know, tear by the grace of God go I, how could I, how could I complain? And we we maintained a friendship up until a few years ago when she finally left her body. But oh. um, she she was it was a gift to be moved next to her. It's fascinating, right? How that finding somebody in that situation it turned out to be support for you. <laughs> like you think you know somebody. Oh, crazy! Yeah, how that happens. Yeah, she she had had an accident, woke up from a coma on her 18th birthday with the oh. news that she was a total quadriplegic and she had damage to her vocal cords so she couldn't speak properly. And she spent her entire life like that. And, you know, the, the amazing thing about that was that she was always smiling, always. She never complained. The whole time I knew her, never complained. And whenever I used to speak to her, she used to always ask me how I was. Oh. And... I just say she gave me the greatest gift, and that was the gift of acceptance. Right, right. Mm. Oh, God. So how long were you in that room with her, or were you together with her? Well, a few months. I was in, in the spinal ward for around five and a half months, and most of that flat on my back, just looking up at the paint peeling off the ceiling. <laughs> and following the five and a half, so when, when was it determined that you could – go home. So how did that transpire? Well, uh, you know, they, they, there's a certain amount of period where they know that the bones have healed in my back. Uh, spinal protocol has changed a lot these days where um, if they're using metal to, to, to mend the spine, you, you get up a lot quicker. But when it's um, surgery, like they took out two of my broken ribs and rebuilt my back and used Oof. another rib as a splint on either side. So because it's bone to bone, it takes longer to heal. Right. That's why I was in bed for such a long time. So when they had determined that that was long enough for, for for my back to heal. They then uh, took me to another part of the hospital and put me on a slat bed and where they wrapped my whole torso in plaster. So I had a body plaster cast. And then a whole day on a tilt bed, getting me upright and then into a wheelchair. And then I had, uh, you know, weeks and weeks of rehabilitation at the gym at the hospital and a few trial runs to go home. And during that time, I had to... Uh, learned to use a catheter, which was humiliating right. and frustrating. Uh, I had to be able to do that before I could go home. And then I finally left home, you know, with a plaster body cast and in a wheelchair, Ugh. unable to walk. And at that point when you left, what were you or where were you? Like, were you thinking, were you thinking I'm going to start something or, or where were you at that point? I just wanted to go home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I wanted to go back to my bedroom with my things, with my family. I just wanted to leave the hospital and I just wanted to start my life again. And, um, you know, they they had me up and standing. You know, I didn't have any feeling in my legs or my feet. 
And I, it was incredible. I mean, you can sort of look down and you think, well, why can't I move my legs? Right. <laughs> and it was like, the, you know, the circuit had been, had been broken. And I just thought, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to learn to walk again. I'm going to, I'm going to get my life back. And I was really, really determined. And when you got home, that's when this sort of, is that when you decided, nope, I'm going to do this again? Well, the thing is, the nurse at the hospital had said, I mean, because I'd always been so positive, even, you know, when things were looking terrible, like, right. you know, and, and, and not working out. I was like, no, I'm going home. I'm actually going to the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. And I remember the nurse at the hospital said, you know, Janine, um, look, you you know, you you need to basically um, rethink your life and everybody is up, you know, it's easy to be up when you're in hospital because everybody is in a similar situation. But really be ready because when you get home, it's going to hit you and and you're going to be, you know, you're going to realize how different your life is. And I had no idea, Um, but she was right. And I got home and all of my friends were off skiing and racing and I I sort of got home and, you know, I was nothing left of me. I'd lost so much weight. I was just skin and bones, plaster body cast in a wheelchair, attached to a catheter bottle. You know, I couldn't walk, you know, and it, it was a very dark moment of my life, but... I think the the straw that broke the camel's back, and this is what I wrote about in, in my book, is, and I haven't shared, there's a lot of things that I haven't shared before, but I think with age, you know, you become uh, a lot more courageous in sharing the personal, more personal and sensitive right, parts right. of life. So I, I was wheeled into a uh, male doctor's office uh, for a rehab appointment and in my wheelchair. And he looked at me and he said, right, Janine, um, so let's talk about your sex life. And I remember sort of squirming in my chair and, you know, well, isn't there a a female doctor I can talk to? (laughs) Uh, uh, No, sorry, but, you know, I'm really sorry. I know this is uncomfortable, he said, but, you know, this is something that all spinal patients have to come to terms with. And he said, and he he said to me, he looked at me and he said, "Um, you know, you'll never have the big O again. That's the way it began, the conversation? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I just, you know, I can remember sitting there and just trying to hold back the tears, you know, and the humiliation. And I remember going home and that was it. I mean, I thought, okay, I've lost everything I valued, you know, uh, and now I've lost my ability to be a woman. And that was it. I thought, I don't, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be, this is not my, this is not my life. This is not my body. This is not what I, I, don't, I choose, I don't choose this anymore. And it was rock bottom for me. And I can remember, you know, thinking in my room, well, how, how would I do this? You know, how do I, how, how, how do right. I end this? How do I get out of this? And I think I was just, there was just, you know, I say the, the gift of rock bottom is that there's nowhere to hide and there's nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And I can remember sobbing in my bed, my bedroom in the dark and crawling to the edge of my bed on my knees and just saying a prayer. And it just went something like, God, you you know, show me a way through this or show me a way out. Right. And I meant that with my heart. I just thought, I can't do this. I cannot do this. And I think it was a really seminal moment in my life because what had actually happened is I let go. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I let go of who I thought I was. I let go of the dreams and I let go of the life that I thought I was supposed to live. 
And when I did that, something incredible happened. You know, I suddenly began to look at the world in a different way. And, 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 and the gift in that is that I started to say, okay, so now what? You know, what can I do with my life? Right. I, I have to find something. So it's almost like you allowed yourself to not be the person you thought or the direction you were always going to go in. It was the first time maybe you allowed yourself to consider there were other things to do, I guess, or other doors to open. Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, you know, you can, we can hold on yeah. so tightly to the life that we think we're supposed to live. And, you know, life has other plans for us, and we're not going to see that until we're actually at that point, you know, that almost that what I call the state of readiness, you know, where we're really open and... You know, it's painful. I mean, any any change is painful. It's like shedding a skin and it hurts, you know, and it's something that we have to go through. And, you know, I say the gift of rock bottom is that, um, you know, we find out who we are. Right. But I, I think in this story, what's so inspiring and so empowering to all of us is when you did, first of all, being able to have the strength to give that up. I think that probably had to be the hardest thing of all, to give up what you'd worked so hard for your entire life. You'd work towards that and you self-defined yourself, which we all do, right? You think this is what I'm going to do. And the strength to give that up and to allow yourself to try something else, I think is, at least in this story, something we all need to learn that you know, things happen, like you just said, and the ability to sort of redirect your vision or redirect your, your, your goal or your, what you're going to do, that has to be the hardest thing, I would think. Tremendously hard, and it takes a lot of courage. And, you know, when we stay open to that and keep our heart open and, you know, we find that life is actually filled with these possibilities that we could never have entertained before. And maybe there's you know, maybe there's something better waiting for us. Right. Like, was there a reason that I'm now forced to change direction? Yeah, and I think, you know, I always say it's, you know, we know it's not what happens to us, it's how we respond to that. But, um, you know, I I had this unwavering belief that I had come back to my body. There had to be a purpose behind everything. And therefore, I'm going to go out and find it. And, you know, I, from my experience, I really think that there is no meaning of life. There is meaning in life. And we bring each of us the meaning to whatever it is we're going through at any particular moment. And the way we, we, we our relationship to our circumstances, to our suffering is, is really what creates meaning in life. And it's different for everybody. And I wanted to, to, to find some meaning in this. I didn't, I didn't believe that this was just some random event that happened for no reason. I was going to create meaning out of my experience. And, and when, this, when you decided to do this, like, what was the first thing that inspired you? Like, how did you say, all right, you know what? I'm going to do this. Like, what was it that well, said... I, I, yeah, I think I wanted to prove to... I, you know, I felt like, oh, well, I... I can't give up yet. You know, I can't, yeah. I can't do that to my mom and dad, you know, after everything they've been through. But really I had something, I thought I had something to prove to the doctors that had told me I'll never do this and I'll never do that. But, yeah. you know, looking back, it was actually myself I had something to prove to. And, 
you know, I had to actually, what I had to do is reinvent my life, you know, who I was and what I thought was possible in my life. And the letting go was like um, opening my eyes to just a new way of being. Um, you know, I, I love the Marcel Proust quote that says, a journey of discovery is not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Right. And that's what it was for me. It was having new eyes, a new way of seeing what's possible for life. Right. Like a new appreciation of what's out there and what you can do as opposed to, I guess, what you no longer could, you know, what you no longer could do. It's now what you can do, I guess. Yeah. You know, just letting go of that. I mean, I really just turned my back on my sporting life and, yeah. um, and, and, and sort of turned around and said, okay, so what now? And that's when everything changed. And this is so exciting for those of you out there. I'm speaking with Janine Shepard. The, the, there's so many things and titles that I can give to you. So, um, but most recently, the author of Defiant, A Broken Body is Not a Broken Person. And Janine is telling us about um, sort of a life-changing moment where she decided, you know, I, I'm going to do this and I'm going to start with something new. And so, Janine, tell us about that when you decide, you know what, okay, with these new eyes, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I thought, well, okay, I'm sitting outside. I thought I'm going to go and find something. I'm going to open myself to, up to possibilities. And what I was saying is yes. I was saying yes to life. You know, yeah. it was like, you know, I think we all get to a point in life when we feel broken, when we feel like we can't keep going, you know. And, and I always say that's a choice. You know, we now have a choice. You know, I chose to come back to my body. And I had a choice. Do, do, do I stay down or do I get up? Do I say no to life or do I say yes? And, you know, part of saying yes is you say yes to all of life. You know, you can't cherry pick. You can't say, I'm only going to take the good bits. Right, right. <laughs> you know, you, you're, taking, you're taking all of it. And in fact, the gift is actually in the struggle. You know, the mm -hmm. gift is in, you know, in, in the, the most painful parts of life because that's, that shows us who we are. And uh, I can tell you, I'm not my body. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I was sitting outside in my wheelchair and an airplane flew over. And in the most unlikely and probably ridiculous moment, I looked up and thought, okay, well, if I can't walk, then maybe I can fly. That was and, the first time you'd yeah. ever considered flying? That It hadn't been anything oh, you thought about yeah. before? I'd never thought about it. I mean, I was completely a completely focused athlete. I had, it was never something I had considered. And right now it just seemed like it was perfect because I can't think of a better metaphor for freedom yeah. than from lying paralyzed in a spinal ward to being in an airplane and flying. And, you know, my mum thought I was crazy. <laughs> And you know, and they drove me out. Mum and a friend drove me out to the airport in a plaster body cast, carried me into the flying school, you know. And I sort of, I said, "Hey, I'm here for my flying lesson." <laughs> and I, I had booked in for a trial flight. They had no idea, of course, what to expect. And they had to lift me into the airplane in my plaster body cast. <sighs> And I couldn't use my legs, but I could use my hands. And the instructor that day let me take control of the aircraft with my hands and fly the airplane. And, you know, it was just like, oh, my God. You know, it was like I couldn't believe it. I was filled with this sense of joy and wonder and excitement. I'm, you know, I, this is it. I'm going to do this, you know. And that was it. That moment changed my life. And I thought, I'm going to be a pilot. And I had no idea how on earth I would ever pass a medical. Right. <laughs> you know, I, but it was like it didn't matter. It just didn't matter because 
this was it. This was a thing. This was this was it was like it ignited something inside me. And, you know, I call it my pilot light. I say, we've all got it. We've got this inside. And it doesn't matter what happens in life. You know, it can, it can dull down and we can feel beaten and broken, but it's always there. You just have to remember that that's what I call the defiant human spirit. Right. And so this, this, you know, sort of reignited that, that spirit inside me. And, and then that was it. And that changed my life. And at that point I thought, you know, they, they thought they'd never see me again and I went home and I had a plan and I had a training diary and uh, at first, you know, my mum used to help me lie on the ground and I used to lift my leg, you know, one inch off the ground and that was it. And, you know, I just, I practiced my walking and, um, you know, months and months went by and, you know, I I eventually passed the medical and um, I went on and I learned to fly and I, I got what's called my private pilot's license and, um, and this is all while I'm learning to walk again and learning to use a catheter so that I could even go to the bathroom when right. I went out because I thought I'm never going to be able to go out in public. Right, right. And, um, and then I learned to, to navigate and I actually flew an airplane around Australia with some friends and then I went on and I learned to fly in bad weather and got my instrument rating. I got my commercial pilot's license. I got my instructor rating. <laughs> I got my aerobatics rating um, and then I became a flying instructor, an aerobatics flying instructor, in around 18 months after I'd left the spinal ward. In only 18 months, you'd accomplish that much? Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, it's crazy that you were able to accomplish that much while, as you said, undergoing so much in your personal life at the same time with the rehabilitation and everything else you were going through. You know, that was my rehabilitation. Flying was my rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it gave me my life back. It, you know, it, it was so important because my self-esteem had taken such a knock. Yeah. You know, I was really, I hated, I hated my body. I felt ashamed of my body. I felt embarrassed about using a catheter, and you know, and the way I walked. People used to stare at me all the time. I didn't feel strong. You know, I didn't right. feel like the strong athlete that I'd once been. But you know, when I was flying an airplane, I was limitless. I was, you know, nobody could stop me and nobody could tell that I had any injuries. And, you know, it was just so important. And it was just, it it was my rehabilitation and it was, it was my life. I lived and breathed it. I flew as much as I could. Um, and yeah, it just saved, it saved my life and gave me my life back. And if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I think you were the youngest and only female director of Australia's Civil Aviation Safety Authority after that. I did. I Which is crazy, like how you, you progressed to that. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's just been a, an incredible journey. And it just shows, you know, that when you sort of let go of who you, you know, the life that you think you're supposed to have, um, you know, life, I say to say, the magic happens on the other side of, of right. the hill. And, I, and you know, maybe I, I would think as a mom and, and I look at my kids and I think it wasn't just there was something within you regardless of what it was you were doing. So when you gave up maybe the direction of the Olympics and the, the skiing and the, you still had that strength and that courage and that wherewithal. Like that was you. Your, your genetic composition was that wherewithal, the strength and the determination to overcome. And that's what I think is so inspiring. So you just sort of redirected it. Your situation changed and you redirected and adapted sort of accordingly, I think, and brought into play those strengths that you had 
to overcome. And I think that is what is so inspiring to everybody out there and so empowering. And so, I don't know. I mean, I just think this story should be told to everybody. Well, you know, it's it's true. I mean, I've, I've learned a lot of, you know, the skills that I have in my toolkit. I've learned from my, my life as an athlete. And I have to say that, um, you know, if people ask me who do I admire or who is a role model for me and, and what does strength look like? I mean, strength and courage comes in many different in forms. And to me, one of the strongest and most courageous people I've ever met is Maria, the girl right. that I spent the time next to in hospital because... Um, you know, to live a life as a total quadriplegic and to live it with such grace and acceptance, uh, you know, to smile and, and, and what she gave back to me was incredible. I mean, I think that that's courage and that is strength. Yeah. And, you know, she wasn't an Olympic athlete. Um, but I think that it's, um, you know, I, I don't think <clears throat> I'm, you know, developed these qualities um despite what I've been through, I think it's because of what I've been through. I think mm-hmm. that when you, you know, accept that, that life is filled with, you know, these challenges and struggles and you, uh, you know, you turn around and you face your greatest fears, I mean, that's what builds resilience. Right, right. And when they told you that day, going back to when that doctor said, you know, you walked into this male doctor who, I, I'm guessing it was not probably the most compassionate way to deliver news to you (laughs) also at that time did he suggest to you or tell you that having children was not going to be an option as well they they had said that in hospital to me and they told my parents too and you know um when i did get married and i said to uh, my husband at the time you know my husband to be at the time that i didn't think that i'd have children um you know, we thought, well, we'll just, we'll see what happens. And as it turns out, you know, I gave birth three times and have three beautiful children and it's been, it's incredible. I mean, it's something that I never would have thought of myself as something I would embrace and that I really wanted to to, to aspire towards. But of course, when someone turns around and says, you'll never do it, right. then you realize, oh, I really want, I really want this. And, right. you know, being a mum, you know, I'm so, I just, I love being, I love being a mum and, you know, I've just, um, even though I'm now living on the other side of the world to them, um, you know, we, we're very close and I'm very proud of who my kids are and, and the sort of lives that they live. Yeah. Right. Right. Again, being told you can't and saying, wait a minute, if I can't, I, it's going to happen. And if it can't, I'm going to get as close as I can to it. I'm going to get out there and do it. <laughs> and, and by the way, well, those you- I mean, if it doesn't happen, then, you know, then I'll make a choice at that point. Right. But why worry about it now? Let's see what happens. Everyone needs to listen to this to you and everyone needs to read this book, everybody, because no matter the degree to which you're facing an obstacle, greater, lesser, it doesn't matter. It's a lesson that you teach all of us. And what I love about the lesson is you're very honest about the bad times because it's, it's, it's great to hear that everything's great and everything worked out and you did this, but I so appreciate that you're, you have the strength to share the honest part, the honesty of the very difficult times because I think people need to, can relate to that as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not going to say, you know, life is going to be great all the time. No, I mean, my, you know, my message is life is filled with hills, you know, but it's, it's the hills that give our lives meaning, that show us who we really are and, um, you know, that show us how strong we can be. You know, we, how, how are we ever going to know how courageous we can be without it being able to feel fear? 
right. in our lives. Right. And my life is, you know, it's one thing to talk about the accident, but, you know, been and, and not everyone's an Olympic athlete that gets run over by a truck, but right. <laughs> as you'll know from my book, there have been, you know, a series of incredible losses in my life that have been um, equally challenging, which is, you know, getting married and having children was wonderful. And in Australia, everyone followed my story and thought, you know, it's isn't this great? You know, and I even thought, well, I've had my accident and that's it. (laughs) And then my husband fell ill with a a very serious illness that basically undid our marriage and made it untenable. So then, of course, I I began this journey of separation and divorce, which so many people have had to face, which is incredibly painful. And, you know, I felt like I was letting my kids down. And, of course, then being a single mother for 10 years and working to support my kids, which was incredibly difficult. And to the point where I've, you know, I ended up facing such financial difficulties, raising my kids and working on my own, um, that I'd lost my house. And once again, I thought, here I go again. And I had to sort of pick myself up and and recreate my life and and that's what I did I moved to America and 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 you know I've written a, a new book and you know I guess the, the story is that the hills never stop right you know that that life is filled with hills and 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 valleys and I mean that's what makes life rich and meaningful you know, if we didn't have those hills and the struggles, it'd be it'd be boring, to be honest. <laughs> That's right, because you would just take everything for granted. And I don't think you'd ever... Absolutely. Right, how do you realize the good if you haven't gone through the bad? How do you know what's good? How do you distinguish? Absolutely, and I think through those moments and the struggles that I've been through and have helped me, you know, have opened my heart to a bigger world and a bigger story... You know, when I started, when I shared my story in Australia and it had been on 60 Minutes and they actually, my first book was made into a movie and, you know, I began speaking and sharing my story. It opened me up to this entirely new way of seeing the world, which was, you know, there's this common human experience, which is that we're all, you know, bumping into walls and tripping right. over stones. We all have experiences of loss in different shapes and forms. Um, but that's what connects us. Right. That's what brings us together and connects us and that is actually where the healing comes from and and i think the honesty of it too because you know in this age of social media and everything's perfect every picture you know posted you're like oh god everything's always perfect in their life and mine is terrible you need you need a breath of fresh air you need somebody saying you know what no it's not stuff doesn't always go well and things are bad and you can get through them and that's what i think is so important and I also think even for your children for all kids out there to hear this it is such an important lesson everything that you're saying is so important I think in so many ways the strength to overcome and the the understanding that there's not just one path there there you know we don't know what's going to happen be open to whatever is out there but I also think the message that not everything's great for everybody and that's another way to connect also and I think that's I personally think that's where people have a hard time sometimes sharing the bad. It's great to share the good, but you know, when the bad comes along, which is what we all need to hear to relate to and to feel the, I don't know. I so appreciate that part of it. Oh, I agree. I mean, the social media has a lot to account for. I mean, it's great, but you know, everything's perfect. And you know, I, you know, I think it's really important to be able to say, you know, I'm, it's, it's painful. It's hurting. And, um, you know, I think that being vulnerable is the bridge that connects us all. Yeah, 
definitely. But I think it takes courage to allow yourself to be vulnerable too. I think it's tough sometimes to allow yourself to share that with someone else. That's right. And, you know, opening up and sharing is is so important because, you know, we get hope from understanding that, you know, we're not alone on this journey and it is tough and it's okay. That's okay. And your kids, I mean, it's for them to see how strong you are. Like, and I would also think that just as a, just a lesson in life, like there's, you're incredibly strong and you're, and, and there were times that were really tough, but you got through them and you've, you know, you, you come out of it. And I love that what you said is they're always hills. Because it's true. You can't think just because you got over one, you're safe. It's not like that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I always say, you know, as a, you know, I use that analogy of the hills because when I was a young athlete, I, I trained on the hills and discovered pretty quickly that nobody else really liked the hills. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this is, this, is my, this is my edge, you know. And then I realized that, you know, the, the, the truth of life is that you get over one, there's always another one. Right. You know, and I'd been through my accident, but then, you know, then my husband got sick and then I went through divorce and single parenting. And I mean, I've had to recreate myself over and over, but, you know, you've just got to stay with it. You know, that, um, you know, the magic happens on the other side. And, um, you know, we, that's when we really learn who we are and what we're made of and what's important in life. And, you know, the things often we think life is about rearranging the externals and I say it's actually not about rearranging the internals right when and of all that you've been through which is tremendously unbelievable just to begin with and that you've overcome all of this looking back is there sort of like a moment that sticks out to you that you can always sort of hold on to like you know something you're most proud of yourself with, like something you can go back and hold on to and say, yeah, that's me. That's when I really came out. That's when my strength, my, like I'm always going to go back to the time and realize I, I, that's the way I always want to be. You know, there are so many milestones in my life, so many points where I've felt like giving up and I haven't. So I wouldn't say that there's, you know, one particular moment um, I think it's, you know, a, a combination of moments, but I think, you know, that I keep getting up, you know, that every time I get yeah. knocked over, I keep, I keep getting up and I realize that um, that, you know, that there's a gift in everything. I say that it doesn't matter what you're going through in life. If you make the decision that you, that you will find the gift in something, then, then it, it'll, it'll be there for you. It'll be there waiting for you. And, and for those of you listening tonight, by the way, Immediately, you need to go out and get Janine Shepard's book, Defiant, A Broken Body is Not a Broken Person. But, and as I mentioned before, Janine has accomplished, I mean, it's beyond <laughs> conceivable how much you've accomplished. And I, as I mentioned before, the youngest and only female director of Australia's Civil Aviation Safety Authority. She's also done TED Talks she's, and, and been interviewed all over the place. But she's also an ambassador for the Spinal Cure Australia and Red Bull's Wings for Life. And these are just a few of her accomplishments. I mean, you are you are the most inspirational person. I think I, I I can't even believe what you've achieved since overcoming what you have. I, I just oh, thank you. That that's really kind of you. <laughs> and I'm just like everybody else, though. I'm just you know putting one foot in front of the other and doing the best that I can. And I think that's all we have to do is just take you know take it a day at a time and and just appreciate every single moment, every single day of life because 
I know how easily the breath can be taken from us. Right. And sometimes it's sort of our choice whether or not we have the strength to continue and to keep going. And it's by hearing stories like yours that will give us that strength. Knowing that somebody has done this and is willing to share their story, I think is what encourages others to get through what they have to get through. So I'm so grateful for you for that. And I can't believe this, Janine. Thank you. We only have a minute left. I could talk to you forever. (laughs) I I can't thank you enough for coming on tonight. It was such an honor, and I hope you come back again. I really do. And I hope you're Uh, in New York and you come into the studio so we can meet someday. Well, thank you. Well, I'm. you know, it's been a thrill. And I have to say, you know, if there's one thing I want to leave the listeners with, it's this, is to, to go out and share their stories with each other. Because, you know, it gives, it's not just my story, but we've all got a story. Um, And, you know, you never know how you can touch another person's life when you're willing to sort of open up and be vulnerable and share with someone. I so agree with that. And again, everyone out there could not be more grateful to you for doing exactly that. So as I said before, everybody, get right out there right now. And if you don't already have it, Defiant, a broken body is not a broken person. And I... It's exactly your story. It's the most perfect title. Everything about it is perfect. Um, and Janine, what is the best way to get the book? Uh, well, they can um, get it from Amazon or um, if they go to my website, uh, JanineShepard.com, there are different links there, of course, that show, show them where they can buy the book. Um, they can also listen to my TED Talk, which is a broken body, isn't a broken person. Um, they can sign up and be part of my community on my website as well. So um, I just love to stay in contact. I can't thank you enough. And everyone, thank you for listening tonight. Um, Again, Janine Shepard, I can't thank you enough for sharing this story. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a thrill. (laughs) And it it was my thrill. And every listener's thrill, I promise you. And everyone out there, I'll see you next (laughs) Thursday night. Good night for more fun moments. See you then.
If you served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Voted number one jazz cabaret club by New York Magazine, the Metropolitan Room is one of the most critically acclaimed venues in New York City and is known as the home for big-name talents and rising stars. Known as a celebrity hangout, the Metropolitan Room is a high-end cabaret and jazz club and brings the best in live music to New York City every night of the week. Fabulous award-winning Broadway, TV, film, and radio performers take the stage in an intimate 